we're in Acts 25 and 26 today. We're getting near the end of this book, uh, and these sections keep getting a little bigger each week. So it's a full two chapters we're looking at this week. And uh, so if you remember, you're looking for it. New Testament, you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. And so uh, just to catch you up, because there's a lot of narrative going on, a lot of things moving along to make sure we understand what's happening before we start reading. Uh, so a while back, Paul was in Jerusalem. And he's in the temple, uh, and these Jews from Asia uh, show up, and, and they are so angry to see him that they start to, to beat him with this intent to kill Paul. And he gets rescued, ironically, by the Roman government when they arrest him for, I guess, getting beat up by people. Um, and so then the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem have this conspiracy uh, that they're going to kill Paul, and that's their, that's their plan. And so as soon as the Roman leaders learn that they're going to kill Paul in this conspiracy theory. They send Paul out to Caesarea in the middle of the night, a different town that's out uh, along the coast, uh, and he heads that way. And so there, there's this trial where he's put on trial to figure out what exactly is going on. Uh, and the Roman governor, Felix, is the one who, who kind of conducts this trial. The end result of that trial was that they are going to keep Paul in jail uh, until the tribune, who's the leader back in Jerusalem, comes all the way out to Caesarea and gives more information. Uh, however, the way that ends up turning, up, uh, turning out is the guy never comes out, uh, apparently, to do anything because it's two years have passed. Paul's still sitting in prison, still waiting for his trial, still waiting to hear what's going to happen. Um, and so then Felix, who's the governor, leaves office, and he just leaves Paul in, in prison. That's the way that kind of last chapter ended. And so Festus is now going to be the new governor. He's taking uh, this office. And today we're going to see Paul's interaction with this new governor and a guy named King Agrippa who is going to show up and, and kind of interact as well. So um, now since there's two chapters, we would just spend our entire time again reading through these chapters today. And that would be, you know, read, pray over if that's the way we did it. So um, I'm going to read one section that we're going to focus in on, on, on more detail today. And, and after we, we pray and have read that section, we'll go back and I'll kind of catch you up in a, in a shorter summary kind of way as to where we have come from. So uh, if you've got your Bibles, open up to Acts all the way to chapter 26. And we're going to begin reading in verse, verse 12. Okay? Um, and, and as we read this, understand this is a speech by Paul who is speaking to King Agrippa and Festus in, in kind of defense. He's responding to them. So, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me, and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick, kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint to you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and, seen, uh, you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from the people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, then throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, 
performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus, with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I, I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. The grass withers and the flower fades. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we need what only you can give. And we need faith to believe, faith to believe that this is your word, faith to believe that you are real and have dwelt among us and died and rose back to life and are alive today. And so we look to you, God, to provide what only you know we need and only you can provide. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So then, to go back a little bit, so Paul's been in jail for two years, sitting, waiting, probably very frustrated. Uh, and the new governor comes into, into power, and Festus, on his third day in office, sees Paul and figures, what are we going to do with this guy? And so he travels back to Jerusalem, um, and, and as he's there, he speaks to the Jewish leaders, and there's the, the conspiracy plan basically comes back up again. They want to see if they can get Paul transferred back there, and the hope is that as he's being transferred, they will ambush him and be able to kill him. Um, Festus, however, doesn't fall for this at all. He sees right through it, and he insists that Paul's accusers come from Jerusalem to Caesarea rather than the other way around. Uh, so if you remember, two years back, there were the 40 men. They took this oath, uh, and their oath was, we will neither eat food or drink, drink, water, whatever it might be, uh, until we have killed Paul. Two years have passed. Can you imagine how hungry those people are by this point? Um, really, though, so those, those men at this point are either dead uh, because they kept their word, or more likely they have broken their oath, and we think that because of the kind of character you can see these men have to begin with. Um, and so then these, these Jewish authorities um, who hate Paul come to Caesarea, and, and it, it's kind of a long, drawn-out thing in the narrative there, but uh, it's basically the same trial again. The same information goes on again, and in the end, the Jews start asking, can we have Paul? Send him back to Jerusalem. We'll try him in our court, and we'll figure out if he's, if he's guilty or not. And, and so Paul hears this, and, and Festus actually asks him about this, and, and he knows that if he goes to that court, he's not going to get a fair hearing. He knows they're going to find him guilty and have him put to death. Uh, and, and so at this point, he, he kind of uses his Roman citizenship card, right? Uh, and he asks for his, this trial before Caesar. It's kind of like if we were to, you know, I would like to stand before the Supreme Court. That's the card he's trying, trying to pull. Um, and Festus agrees to that. Sure, okay, we'll send you to Rome. Uh, soon after, this guy, King Agrippa, shows up. He and his sister, Bernice, 
and they arrive in Caesarea, and Festus relays to them this whole story, everything that's going on, uh, and tells them it's basically this Jewish dispute where this guy Paul says that this guy Jesus, who they say is dead, is alive, and, and he's trying to explain this to them. Um, and, and so King Agrippa says, well, I'd like to hear from Paul. Uh, can we listen to him tomorrow? Can we ask him questions? And, uh, and Festus agrees to this because along with sending Paul to Rome, he has to send this letter to Caesar that says, you know, here's what's going on. He has no idea what to put in the letter. And he figures if we, if we basically get to hear from him again, maybe I'll know what to write in this letter. And so uh, now Paul's about to, to speak to this king. And this is one of those things you can gloss over, but it's pretty significant uh, and pretty interesting because 20 years ago, back when Paul was, was just getting started, remember we just kind of saw this, this conversion experience of Paul. Of Saul, of Paul. Uh, but back in Acts 9.15, Jesus said of Paul, he said, He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings. And the children of Israel. And so here's this statement. You are going to take my word before kings. And Paul would have heard that 20 years ago. <clears throat> probably even kind of forgot about it at this point. Maybe. I don't know. Uh, and, but you think about this. I imagine if you're Paul, you probably didn't picture it happening like this. It's probably more likely that you think, you know, I'm going to become a popular speaker. Kings are going to so respect me that they're going to bring me in and want to hear counsel from me. Well, sometimes God's plans aren't the way we imagine them to be. Uh, because the way he ends up before kings is death threats, these criminal accusations, um, imprisonment. And that's the way that God actually fulfills this word that he's given to Paul, that he's going to be proclaiming Christ before kings. And so that's where he finds himself right here. And so as chapter 26 begins, Paul is standing before the, the king, and he's actually grateful to be before this king. And the reason he says so is because uh, this king has a good understanding of Judaism. Uh, this guy, he understands Judaism. <clears throat> and so then Paul begins to explain to him, uh, I was a Pharisee. And he's explaining to them, listen, me and the Pharisees, we both have the same hope, uh, the hope of a future resurrection, a hope of a Messiah. And the only real reason I'm under trial here today is because I know that that hope has been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, and they don't think it's happened yet. Um, and so then Paul tells this, this, this new audience the story that we've already seen twice already. This is the third time we've seen it in the book of Acts about his zealous persecution, the way he hated Christians, the way he was, he was going to be having them locked away and put to death. And he talks about his interaction with Christ on the road to Damascus and his coming to faith, right? <clears throat> so now, now then we're coming to the section that we read. And this is the area I really want to focus in on because there's a few things I, I don't want us to miss, miss here. So... If you've got your Bible, verse 18 in front of you, look at this again. It says, uh, well, we'll read it in a second. It says, uh, but he's on the way to Damascus, right? And he's telling the story. And Jesus had told Paul that he's sending him to open the eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. Okay, that's one of the things Paul's been sent to do. Uh, blindness. It doesn't take much to realize the image of blindness, right? Uh, it is not being able to see something that is clearly before you. And all throughout the Old Testament, God speaks about this idea of, of blindness uh, and, and giving sight. And God says, I will give sight to people um, as an image of giving belief, of giving faith, of giving knowledge which, of, of what is true. And so um, while Paul is not the actual power by which God will open eyes uh, it, it, uh, to believe, it is through the gospel that Paul proclaims that the eyes of the blind will be opened so that they can see and believe that Jesus is indeed the Messiah who forgives their sins. So um, 
Paul was unique, right? He's an apostle. We're not apostles. But in the same way, we have been called to proclaim the gospel. Uh, you and I, to proclaim the gospel that opens the eyes of the blind to believe on Jesus. And so then, even without looking, you know, leaving verse 18 here, I want to show you something else here. I want you to notice that, that God has also sent him that people would turn from the power of Satan to God. That's the thing our modern ears just kind of like glide over, right? Let's just pretend that's not there and keep going. Um, because most of us don't have any concept of, of Satan, and so we simply just pretend he doesn't exist, or we go the other way, where we pretend that Satan is this super powerful, powerful being that, that you know, can't be controlled, and, and, and that's not true either. Um, because God's word is very clear, first of all, Satan does exist. Uh, this is a real being. However, Satan and Jesus are not equals. They are not on the same plane. They are not equal counterparts. Um, God created Satan. That sounds weird, but he did. Uh, and God will bound Satan. The question we have when we, when we see that, you know, just speaking of Satan in Scripture, is, well, why hasn't God bounded him, bound him already, right? Um, and, and the answer is, I don't know. I, I don't know because God hasn't revealed that in Scripture to us, and, and only God knows that. And so that's one of those things that we come to Scripture, and he's told us that indeed Satan exists, but, but we don't know the reason he hasn't bound him quite yet, um, the way we might desire it. Now, the other thing is we tend to think that, that people are unaffected by, by Satan today, right? Because we don't see Exodus, head spinning, uh, crazy kind of stuff like that. Uh, but think about this. Uh, what would Satan really desire to accomplish in the life of a person today? Um, I think we, we want to jump to a lot of stereotypical things, right? Pentagrams, human sacrifice, poisoning Halloween candy, that kind of crazy stuff. Um, but it's not, you know, in a, in a generation like, uh, like ours, it, it's more that um, just to get people to forget God exists. Just to simply forget God exists in the flow through life. So C.S. Lewis wrote this book called The Screwtape Letters. And, and in it, he's writing from the perspective of one demon, writing to another demon, trying to tell him this is the way we lead humans astray, um, <clears throat> how, we, how we lead them away from God. Now, it's fictional. It's not true history, but it has some good insight regarding how a demon might, might actually work. And one of the, the demons in there is actually writing to another one, and he says this. He says, it's funny how mortals, humans, always picture us putting things in their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. It's conjecture, but uh, if Satan's goal is that we forget God exists, how do you think he's doing in 21st century United States? kind of scary, isn't it? Um, social media, endless television, nearly every song ever recorded on Spotify, uh, just a comfortable American life. None of that's sin. None of that's wrong. But, but if we're not careful, it can lead us into this uh, sort of oblivion of just kind of floating through life without any real thought about anything. And so then here in verse 18, we're seeing Jesus has also sent Paul so that men and women turn from, from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of God and that these people, so that these people might receive forgiveness of sins. The significant word here, which, which I don't want us to miss, is that word receiving, right? Um, they receive forgiveness. I think some of us really struggle with receiving grace. I mean, you're okay with anything religious uh, that helps you feel like maybe you've earned it on some level or you contributed to your forgiveness or, or somehow you've at least paid back some of your forgiveness, uh, at least a portion of it. 
And, and when our hearts are, are worried about paying God back for salvation, it, it's usually how we think in other areas of our life, too. Um, you can kind of you know, evaluate your own life. If, if someone helps you move a heavy piece of, of furniture, do you feel indebted to that person now? Like, I now have to move a heavy piece of furniture for them? Uh, you owe them? Or if someone's watched your kids, have you mentally given them a credit that now you will watch their kids? Uh, what if you invite someone over for a meal? Do you now feel that they owe you an invite over for a meal? Is, it, is there is this, this give and this take mentality to it? it you know? And I ask this because if that's the case, um, you don't need to raise your hand. You don't have to volunteer that information. But, but know in your heart that, uh, indeed, this is probably going to be a struggle for you that you need to pay attention to. Um, and, and so if, it, if that's you, I want you to listen again to that verse 18 and really hear this. God has sent Paul to preach the gospel so that we might, and here it is from the verse, receive forgiveness of sins. Receive forgiveness of sins. Should you be thankful when you receive? Yes, absolutely. But don't treat it as something you've earned or, or, or that's now a, a debt on your behalf. Just receive it. All of it. You don't receive help. You receive, you know, you don't, you don't receive help. You, you need more than help, rather. You receive complete, full forgiveness in Jesus Christ. That's why we can use this phrase when we say that you rest in the gospel, right? Um, this is not like those sketchy credit card deals we see today. It's not, you know, receive the gospel today, zero APR, no payments for 12 months. It's not that kind of scenario here. You're not going to be paying this back in 12 months or over a 30-year mortgage because it was paid in full by Jesus, done complete. There is nothing left for you to actually pay at this point. You just receive it. Now, not only do we receive the forgiveness of sin, there in verse 18, we also receive a place to belong, right? Uh, with those who are sanctified by faith. We have a place in the people of God. I, I, I come from a broken family, and so there are times, um, there were times when I didn't feel as though I had a place in the world at all and, and, and to belong. And, and so I can tell you that uh, that meant so much to me, particularly early in my, my Christian walk to just have a place in this, this family, to have a place in, in the people of God who were the church. And um, and, and it's been my prayer for this church that we might be that for other people, many other people, whether they come from broken homes or wonderful Christian families. Um, so then this next portion here uh, on our passage is going to sound a little strange after seeing that we receive freely the forgiveness of sin. But it's here, right? I want you to see this because Paul goes on to say in verse 20, just two verses later, that every place he went, he declared that they should repent and turn to God performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. What does that mean? Performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So let me just ask you, how do you know when someone is truly repentant? I mean, how do you know? Is it, is it just when, they, when you hear them say those words, I'm sorry? Um, you've heard the parent, right? You've been in the store somewhere and, and the parent's upset and they're yelling and they're you know, say you're sorry. And that kid's, sorry. What's that even mean, right? I'm sorry. Um, I don't know if you ever thought about this. The word sorry doesn't even really mean anything. It really doesn't have much meaning. Like, it's just something we say, you know. Um, <clears throat> there's no confession in there. There's no admission to wrong. 
It really, it might be well be any other word on the planet at that point. You know, tell your sister you're strawberry. Strawberry. It means the same thing. Um, what we should be saying, what we should be teaching people when discipling others, including children, is to ask for forgiveness for something specific. Sister, will you forgive me for throwing that rock at you? Right? Uh, something like that. Uh, and, but, but even if we get that part right, even if we understand it's not sorry, it's this, this phrase, you know, I'm asking your forgiveness, how do we know when someone's words are, are genuine? And that's, that's kind of the point of this phrase here in verse 20, this performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. And uh, understand, that's not like groveling shame. It's not, you know, oh, I'm so horrible, miserable person. Uh, that's not punishing oneself for your, your sins, you know, like Martin Luther before the Reformation where he's beaten himself because he just feels so much shame for his sin. It's not that sort of thing. But it, but it does mean this Holy Spirit and power change. Um, for instance, if, if, you know, Scott comes up here and I just start punching him in the face, you'll be entertained for a little bit, um, you know, and I'm just punching him in the face and he's like, Brian, you're so tough, that hurts, uh, please stop. And, and I just say, I'm, I'm sorry, please forgive me, and I just keep punching him in the face over and over again, right? Uh, are you, you'd be an absolute fool to believe my repentance is real. You know, even if, even if between punches I'm like, I said I'm sorry, get off my case, and I just keep punching him. The reason you'd be a fool to believe that repentance is real is because true repentance shows change. Not perfection. Not that you never fail again. Not that you're not going to fail again tomorrow. But it shows actual change. And, you know, unless we forget, you know, understand that, that Jesus said a very similar thing. Matthew 3, 8. Uh, when he's speaking to the Pharisees and he's speaking to the Sadducees. And he tells them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You see, repentance is part of the gospel message. And that's the part that we reform folks, I think, kind of want to remove from a good perspective. We kind of want to remove it because we're afraid it's going to confuse grace. Um, Really make that difficult to understand. But we have seen over and over, even in this book of Acts here, that gospel proclamation includes a call to repentance. Acts 2.38, Peter's there. Peter tells the Jews, repent and be baptized. Acts 3.19, Peter's standing on, on Solomon's portico, which just means porch. Uh, and he says, repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Acts 14, 15, Paul told the idol worshipers to turn. That's repentance from those vain things to a living God. Acts 17, 30, Paul in Athens at Mars Hill. Uh, and he preaches the, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands people everywhere to repent. Acts 20, verse 21, where Paul says he did not shrink from declaring anything improbable. And in that he includes this. He includes that he preached to both the Jews and the Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Genuine Christianity must have a doctrine of repentance. Um, Kevin DeYoung put this well. He said once, he said, if we preach a gospel that has no call to repentance, we are preaching something other than the true gospel. And he says that because the gospel that gives us us grace not only saves us, but it transforms us. And so then it becomes super clear that in Scripture, uh, rather it becomes super clear in Scripture, that no one who refuses to repent and has received the grace of God, or sorry, no one who refuses to repent is going to enter the kingdom of God. 
Um, because that is a gift. And we can say that because repentance is a gift of God just as faith is a gift of God. And so lest we get, we get too far off this, let me remind you that, that, that repentance, this is the Greek term, you know, metanoia, and it comes from these two words, the one meaning change and the other word meaning mind, to change our mind, change one's mind, meaning we, we mentally and personally now have changed our mind, we're taking responsibility for our sin, uh, you look at your sin and you say, you know what, I'm the reason I did that, I'm the reason I said that, I'm the reason I thought that, or whatever our sin might be. Uh, we acknowledge that my sin in the presence of God really is a big deal. It takes a work of God to bring our minds to that. To, to come to a point where we say, I do deserve the wrath that God says I deserve. And, and we also change our mind about what we think about God from I don't care about God or I don't need God to I do need God. I need Jesus' sacrifice. I need the strength of the Holy Spirit so that I might turn from sin. It's that utter dependence on God. Uh, and the change of mind is, is seen in, in their behavior. Um, when I was, was 16, 16 year olds should not be allowed to drive, but when I was 16, I uh, was in a car and we were with some friends and we were with this girl, Kate Lee, uh, her first time driving without her parents. And we're going out of her neighborhood. It's this long straight street with a whole bunch of stop signs. Uh, and as we're like on her street, we're, we're telling her, you know what? Um, did you know the stop signs with the white lines around them? are optional. You don't really have to stop at those. Um, and she proved that she believed us by driving straight through that first stop sign. And every one of us in that car just absolutely panicked and confessed to her, whoa, just kidding. You have to stop at all of them. You can't really do that. Uh, lucky we didn't get killed from this. She just cruised right through it. Um, and, and, but that's what proved it. She believed us and we knew it. We could see it in her actions, right? And that's why we had to backtrack on that real quick. Uh, and so we see this genuineness of repentance and the change that flows from it, both inwardly and, and outwardly. Uh, okay, so then, so then Paul's still speaking about Jesus rising from the dead, and that's when uh, Festus interrupts him, shouting out, uh, which in the Greek, this is pretty cool, it says megalus telephonus, uh, which translates to megaphone, like you would use to actually make a loud noise with. Uh, so it's this loud, it's very loud, and Festus says this. He's getting frustrated with Paul, and you can hear it. Paul, you're out of your mind. Your learning, your, your great learning, rather, is driving you out of your mind. Is Paul out of his mind? I mean, don't skim over this. Is he out of his mind? Or, you know, another question, are you out of your mind? Are you out of your mind for believing that Jesus rose from the dead. Um, we have two cats now. We keep getting rid of pets and getting new pets, but we have these two cats now. Uh, and, and when they're outside, I find myself watching them out the window because they look absolutely insane. Um, they kind of leap at the air after stuff and they pounce on things. And I'm looking out there and I see nothing. They're leaping at nothing. They're pouncing at nothing. They look absolutely tr crazy. But the truth is there's some bug there. Um, I've gotten close enough that I can kind of see what's happening. Uh, there's some bug that they can see with their eyes and I can't see with my eyes. And so they do look crazy to me, but they're not. And, and the reason that is, is <clears throat> that they, you know, that's the same with us sometimes. Um, you know, people will think you are crazy at times. And one reason is because you are. Uh, and you're doing crazy stuff. But, but the other reason is that people are just going to think you're crazy because of your, your faith in Jesus Christ. 
Uh, we, have, we have relatives and when we go visit them, you really start to feel how crazy people think you are at times. Uh, you know, we're going to pray and, and they kind of like, all right, we'll pray. Uh, or, you know, when we talk about God and, and you just can't get out of your mind in those moments like they think I'm nuts, they think I'm nuts, they think I'm nuts. <clears throat> and, and so every once in a while, I actually force my mind to try to, to hear Christianity from the perspective of, of someone who, who doesn't believe it. Um, and I kind of walk through my mind. So you're saying that this guy, Jesus, was God uh, and that he could walk on water and he could turn all that water to wine if he wanted, and that he did turn some water to wine, and that he fed thousands of people with little bitty pieces of, of bread and fish. Okay, and then some, some guys killed this guy, and some other guys drove nails through his hands and his feet, or was it ankles, uh, and he was like legit dead and stuck into a grave, and then came back to life three days later. And I kind of walked through that in my head, and I think, okay, no wonder they think we're out of our minds, right? It's that question, though, who's, who's really crazy in the world? Is it the blind man who says that the world is dark, or the man with right eyes who looks and says it's beautiful? I mean, I, I get it. The, the resurrection seems crazy. Um, but then every once in a while I remember, you know, I live on a ball that is floating through nothingness, and nothing holding it up at all. And it's in the midst of more nothingness, which we call space. And that all sounds absolutely insane to me until I stop and realize, no, that's real. That's the world I live in. Um, and I hear these crazy things. And I, I can't help but thinking of the famous Apple commercial. How many of you remember that one? Here's to the crazy ones. Laura said none of you know anything about this commercial. Anyone? Raise your hand if you've heard that. Here's to the crazy ones. One person. All right. So, um, I'm a pretty big dork. I reworded this thing to try to make it make sense within gospel truth. And, and you'll have to go watch this, and then it'll make more sense to you later. But it says this. It says, here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs and the square holes, the ones who see things differently, but as they really are. They're not fond of political correctness, and they have no respect for the cultural status quo. You can quote them, disagree with them, praise or vilify them. About the only thing you can't do is ignore them. Because proclaiming the gospel, they change things. They push the human race forward towards eternity. And while some may see them as the crazy ones, we see wisdom. Because the people who are crazy enough to live by faith, thinking God can change the world by sovereign grace, are the ones who see it, see it happen. Uh, and you'll have to go watch that for it to make any sense. But some people are going to think you are crazy because you leave it, believe in Jesus. There's no way around it. Uh, and it's going to become even more likely and more likely as our culture increasingly, collectively, gets further away from the tenets of Christianity. However, someone calling you crazy, thinking you crazy, does not make you crazy. Uh, in verse 25, even here, Paul responds himself saying, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. But I am speaking true and rational words. Um, we saw last week that faith is reasonable, right? Uh, but yes, there is faith, and, and you need eyes to see with faith. You see, the, the woman who is dancing seems crazy to those who cannot hear the music. Galileo sounded crazy when he said that the sun does not revolve around the earth, but the earth around the sun. The guy in the hazmat suit looks absolutely crazy if you don't know that there's invisible radiation all around him. 
and believing the gospel appears crazy if you don't have God-given faith to see the world as it truly is. And so the truth is, Paul's not insane. Paul's in Christ. Paul's then getting bold in verse 27. We see him, him ask this question that he also gives the answer to for King Agrippa, a type of pleading. He says, do you believe the prophets? He's getting bold here saying, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Um, and he's saying this because this creates a huge dilemma for the king. Because if this king says, no, I don't believe the prophets, all these Jews that he's trying to impress are going to be pretty upset at him. And if he says, yes, I do believe the prophets, then Paul is going to launch into this. Let me show you from the prophets why it's true that Jesus is the Messiah. And so the king does what anyone would do in that situation. He absolutely deflects the question, right? Um, he says instead, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? He means... Are you seriously trying to convince me to become a Christian? How would you respond to someone asking you something like that? Um, you know, they say something like, listen, I, I, I keep hearing you talk about Jesus. Are you seriously trying to convert me right now? I mean, what would you say? Would, would you say, no, I'm, I'm just telling you my story, that's all. Uh, or listen, this is just my personal view. I'm not trying to convert you. Um, I'd be tempted to respond that way, right? That's kind of you go back on the defense. And I think that's why I love Paul's response here. You can see it here. The king asked, basically, are you trying to persuade me to become a Christian in such a short time? And Paul's response, yes. Whether a short time or a long time, I am absolutely trying to persuade you and everyone else here to become a Christian. There are times when we present the gospel in slower patient ways. But there are also times like this in our text where boldness is the way to go. Now, I personally appreciate here that Paul still has some, some humor even in this situation um, because he says that he wishes that everyone was just like he was except for these, these chains. And you can kind of imagine him holding them up, right? Um, that's the one thing he'd like to see different. I mean, he'd like to see everyone become a Christian. Uh, and so let's, let's, we're coming here to the end. Let's read the last three verses, and then we'll close. Acts 26, verse 30. Um, then the king arose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them, and when, they had, uh, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to, said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appear, appealed to Caesar. Does your heart kind of sink for Paul there? Um, that he could have been set free if he hadn't made this mistake earlier of appealing to Caesar. Um, I don't know that our heart should sink. I know there's some of us that you feel for him right there, but, but remember Caesar's in Rome, uh, and that's where God was, was sending Paul. That's where God has said he's sending him. And, and so our hearts want to, to, to think that we know what's best for Paul. Like, what a shame that Paul's going to be having to go to Rome, but, but he's still within the, the will of God. It, it, and it's going to be a difficult road, but... But that's where God is sending him. Um, so let's bring this to a close. So, um, if you're unsure about God, now is the time in your life to get sure. And I, I mean this. Do not let mindless floating through life keep you from the deeper thoughts of life. And, and that might mean that we log off of Facebook or we put down our phones or we turn off Netflix and we go outside and we look up and we stare at the stars and we think about the world that we actually live in. We think about the life that we've lived. We think about the death that we cannot avoid. And, and we do this because, you know, I don't want us to flippantly just push these ideas away. No. Um, 
And part of that, you know, you come to the Bible, you open the Bible, and you read it. You read it, and, and you see, this is, doesn't this explain the world as we know it better than anything else ever has or ever will? It explains people. It explains our insecurities and our fears and our anxieties and our selfishness and our sinful condition. And it explains our need of salvation to come from some, somewhere outside of us. And it tells us about Jesus, who is God and who also lived on this same ball floating through space that we live on today. And it tells us about his amazing love that was proven by his death on the cross, securing salvation for all who will come to him by faith. So we'll leave it there. Um, more than anything, don't float through life. There are deep things that need to be thought about. If you know me, I do a lot of stupid, silly things. Um, but there is also a time and a place for real deep thinking, and, uh, and that's an important thing in life, and that's our prayer, prayer for you. And let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we dance, even if many in the world do not hear the music that you are playing. We see with spiritual eyes what man and, and woman in a natural state simply cannot see. We've not lost our minds with great learning, but rather we see rightly what is true in this world which you have created. And God, we, we know that apart from your grace, we could not believe the gospel. And so we thank you for grace and faith. And we ask that you would extend that grace and faith to many more who have heard the gospel on this day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.